0: This from Philippians chapter 1, beginning at the, the end part of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I, know, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to see Jesus in his word. We pray that you would open our ears to hear his voice. Give us hearts that are soft and receptive, ready to put uh, what we hear into faithful uh, action in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to consider two two quotes this morning, two passages uh, that are probably well known to you. Uh, One canonical from our passage here, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The other one, to be or not to be. That is the question. That, of course, uh, the words uh, that William Shakespeare put on the lips of Hamlet. Two men uh, pressed with the same issue, considering the same question. In a broken world, in a world of suffering, is it preferable to live or to die? Now, to, to take you back to ninth grade English class, you'll remember that Hamlet is facing the situation of his father, Murdered by his uncle, his own mother now married to his uncle, and torn to a place of inaction between avenging his father's death on the one hand or taking his own life on the other. I'll read a little more of it. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether 'tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them, to die, to sleep. No more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come. For, we have shuffled off, for when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. Hamlet has captured uh, the imaginations of many for hundreds of years because there's probably no character in Western literature that gives a more transparent look at human nature in a broken world. Harold Bloom, uh, the great Shakespeare scholar, said, we have no equally powerful and influential image of human cognition pushed to its limits. Here's Hamlet looking at the brokenness of the world, and he says, basically, to live is terrible. It's going to make me look at this awfulness of my family and all that's gone on, but to die is a roll of the dice. It's a sleep, but in that sleep, who knows what what dreams may come? Who knows what it will be like, heaven or hell, good things or bad or nothing? He's uncertain about the about what death would hold for him. He's dreading what life would hold. I think there's many of us that can identify with this, especially in, in our, sac- our secular age where it seems like so many of the old certainties have gone away, where it feels like we're unsure of what this life would hold, of even what would, be, what, what would await us in our death. And yet, into that comes the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul sharing the same human condition, the same uh, state of being torn between life and death. You'll remember. Where Paul is writing this letter, he's imprisoned and awaiting his trial. Awaiting a trial that if convicted would bring him almost certain death. And so he waits in prison, wondering if when he faces his trial, he'll be acquitted and set free to live a life, or if he'll be put to death. And he's weighing the two. What's better, to live or to die? And where where, where, where Hamlet says, both are equally undesirable... Both are a mess. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live, to continue on in this life means more of a life gripped by a purpose and a mission that had become the center of Paul's life, making Christ known in the known world, enjoying the sweetness of his presence, ministering within his community. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's even to attain more of Christ. It's to attain Christ uh, really, to be with him by, uh, by sight and not merely by faith. And as he's torn between the two, he essentially comes to this conclusion. It's better for me if I die. To be with Jesus is better by far. But it's better for the community that I live. It's better for all of you that I continue on in life so that I can love you and advance the cause of the gospel among you so I know that I'll continue to live. where can you know that kind of faith, hope, and love where you can find the courage to face life no matter what it, what it holds? Right? We've said that this, excuse me, this section of Philippians chapter 1 is really about joy and faith and life in the midst of suffering. So how can you find life in the midst of suffering? How can you find hope even in the face of your mortality? And find love to animate your life with purpose and mission. Well, that's what we're going to see in this section from the Apostle Paul this morning. The first thing we want to look at is a living faith. A living faith. Paul says that for me, to live is Christ. You know, if you look in in the Greek here, this this sentence is really, it's, it's choppy, but it basically says, to live, Christ, to die, gain. So Paul could basically put an equal sign and say that all of my life, everything I enjoy, my life equals Christ. That everything good that life holds is in Christ. To live is Christ. You know, when Paul met Jesus, you remember that scene from the book of Acts where Paul's on a journey uh, to Damascus. He gets literally knocked off his high horse, right? He gets an appearance of the resurrected Jesus comes to him. He sees Jesus. He's knocked off his horse. He's given, in that moment, a, a whole new life. His entire life becomes redirected. He goes from being a man who vigorously and hatefully persecuted the church of Jesus to being one who, who could then say that to live is Christ, For one for whom the resurrected Jesus became the very center of his life. Paul in that moment, uh, Luke in the book of Acts, does a, an amazing job of kind of narrating this story where Paul literally gets a new set of eyes, right? He, remember, he goes blind and then his eyes are opened again, That he gets a whole new grid through which to view the world. Jesus comes, becomes for him that center point, that, that lens through which he interprets everything else that happens in his life, whether it be imprisonment or freedom success or failure, pain or pleasure. becomes interpreted through the lens of Jesus. And that's how he can, even in the midst of his prison, say, for me to live is Christ. Now, how would you, you each one of us has some way that we would complete the sentence, for me to live is blank. Right? For many of us, we might uh, idealistically want to say that for us to live is Christ, to live is God, to live is our faith. It's the most vital and important thing in our lives. And yet, is it really? If we were to look at our lives, would, would, would perhaps many of you say that for, in practice, for me to live is family, right? For many of us, our family, our marriage, our children becomes, in, in a practical sense, the orienting central piece of our lives. For me to live is work. Men especially, we have a tendency to define ourselves by what we do, by what we make, by our status and position that we attain. Practically, I can enter into my life saying that for me to live is to be a pastor. For me to, that, That's where I find my identity and my worth, my reputation. We have a tendency to define ourselves by our work. Perhaps for you to live is your hobbies, your, your, your pursuit of your comfort and pleasure. For you to live is golf, to live is Uh, water skiing, to live, is reading. But Paul says, and really shows in his life, that for him to live is Christ. It's not that the other good things in life don't matter, right? Certainly our family is a gift and a stewardship from God. Our work, the work of our hands and what we make, is a part of the way that God created us. Even the enjoyment of his creation and our hobbies are good things when they orbit around Christ, when we can honestly say that to live is Christ. And these other things, they add texture and they add richness, they provide for us a way to follow Jesus in the world, but they aren't the center of our lives. Because friends, at some point we will all learn what Paul learned, is that everything else but Christ can be taken away from you and will be in this life. Right, if, Paul's, if Paul said that for him to live is his freedom, it's his health, it's his ministry, at this point when he's wasting away in a Roman prison, unable to carry on his ministry in the same way, unable to enjoy his friendships in the same way, unable to enjoy some of the things of the outside world, he would waste away in despair. If you build your life on your job, At some point, you'll experience loss. You may lose your job. You may may deal with a boss who's a a hard taskmaster. You may encounter loss in that area. If you make your life your children, you put a burden on them that they cannot bear. If you make your life your marriage, when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, you'll be crushed. But if you make your center Christ, when hardship comes in those other areas, you won't, you won't approach it with stoic indifference. You won't, you won't approach a broken marriage with, oh well, for me to live is Christ, I don't need this. But you'll have a joy and a hope and a resource deep enough to bring into that with wholeness. So Paul, his faith was a living faith that animated every piece of his life so that he could say, for me to live is Christ and yet he says, for me to die is gain. So, as, as, as shot through as his life is with purpose and joy and energy of Jesus, death is even better. Death, in his death, he had absolute confidence that he would go into the very presence of Jesus, that he would enjoy Jesus who he's known by faith, that he would know him in person. Now, he's going to get later Uh, In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see that Paul's hope was not only for a spiritual enjoyment of Jesus and death, but eventually that he would share in the resurrection of Jesus, that his body would be remade to re-inhabit the new heavens and new earth with Jesus. So he doesn't stop here. He doesn't stop simply to say that that to be uh, away from the body is to be present with Jesus. But he does say that for him to die is gain. You know, this is um, this is a part of the Christian faith that much of the rest of the world views with uh, with cynicism, perhaps even disdain. You may even think that this the 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 whole mess of thinking that after this life is to be directly in the presence of Jesus is so much wishful thinking that it's wish fulfillment that it's just it's an escapism to help us get out of the the pain and the hardship of this life. We just imagine. That when, we, that when we die, we go and be with Jesus, and everything's better. You may have heard the expression that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're no, of no earthly good, right? That they're so, so fixated on escaping this world, of going away from this world, that they don't care about it. They don't care about its relationships and its systems and its governments and its cities. They don't care about justice and love and neighbor, all those things that, that That should matter to us that Christians are all about getting on to heaven when we die. And Paul deals with that really head on in a couple of ways here. Um, The first is that for Paul, it really wasn't wishful thinking. He his faith, in fact, began with the experience of a dead person risen from the dead. Right? His, 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 His faith, when when he he wasn't left to guess about the resurrection. Right, he, fit, he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He experienced one who had risen from the dead, not just as a, as a one-time freak accident, but one who had risen from the dead with the message that in him all would rise, that in him death had lost its sting, that death was no longer Lord over life, but that life was erupting over death. So he had a real concrete and measurable hope. You know, we're all searching for that, right? We're all searching to, for, for some concrete hope, a hope that we can attach uh, some level of certainty to. I remember the, the first funeral that I ever performed as a pastor was of a, a 22-year-old girl. Um, she was not a Christian. Her boyfriend uh, was a friend of mine who was also himself not a believer. And, uh, and I got a phone call because I was the only pastor they knew. Uh, if it wasn't for me, it was just going to be the guy at the, the funeral home uh, doing, the, doing the funeral. She had died on a rainy night in Orlando, uh, off the turnpike, swerved and hit a telephone pole, and died by the side of the road. And uh, so that was a, this was a jumping into the deep end on funerals. Um, and I remember standing in front of these people and trying to articulate the Christian hope of resurrection. And the way they wanted the funeral to be done was for me to, to lead some prayers, to give the message, and then they wanted an open open mic time for people to share their, their memorances of Kelly. And as people came up one by one, the thing that became so clear to me was how every human heart longs for hope after death. And in the absence of something certain, we just, we just kind of make stuff up. What happened time after time was statements like, well, well, we know that Kelly has her angel wings now. We know that Kelly's not really gone from us. She's here with us. We know that she's looking down on us. We know that she lives on in each one of us. right?" It was the feeling of a room full of people grasping for hope. Grasping for something solid to hold on to grasping for something to enable them to face her death and their own with what Paul had, the ability to say that to live, to live is good, to live is to enjoy the beauty of Jesus, but to die, to die is to enjoy the beauty of Jesus in its fullness, to enjoy his presence, to await resurrection, to die is certain hope. Now, what did that make in Paul? Did that make Paul a man who was so ready to get out of this life that he was so heavenly minded he was of no earthly good? Did that make him an escapist? Does it make that for each one of us? Are we just here biding our time until we get to go and be with Jesus? No. Look at what it gives Paul. It gives Paul what we're going to call a radical love. So remember he says it's it's better for me that I die and be with Jesus. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you hear what Paul says? He says, "I, I will postpone the joy of being with Jesus, not so I can avoid the pain of death, not so that I can keep on going in this life, but for your account. I will continue to live motivated by love, motivated by my calling, that I might be involved in your life, loving you, shepherding shepherding you towards what Paul summarizes as your progress and joy in the faith. So if, if heaven is to be preferred to life, why go on living? Because life offers you a chance to love. It offers you a chance to love. It offers you a chance to enter into the lives of other people with a single-eyed focus on their progress and joy towards Jesus. Their progress in the faith, moving closer to Jesus, walking nearer to Him. Their joy in the faith, enjoying Jesus and delighting in Him. I love the picture that we get of Paul's heart here. right? the, The pastoral warmth that he felt for the Philippian Christians, just kind of drips off the page. That his reason for wanting to get out of prison, his reason for wanting to continue on in the Christian life, is that he might get back with them and pursue their progress and their joy in the faith. You know, as an aside here, I think there's no better description of the pastor's job description than pursuing the progress and the joy and the faith of all of God's people. Um, you know, this, I get to talk a little bit about Chuck for just a second. Chuck is a, uh, I've, I love Chuck. He's a wonderful guy. He's a fantastic pastor. But I know that this is how Chuck, this is why Chuck is given to you as your pastor. That he would live among you, not because he's holier than you, he'll be the one to tell you that, Not because he's smarter than you, he's smarter than me, but you know, not not just because of that, but he's placed in this community, a pastor is given to a church for their progress and joy in Jesus. You know, I can speak as a pastor, it's difficult in this world to figure out what your job description is sometimes, right? We attach a lot onto pastors, right? We're supposed to be preachers, as eloquent and intelligent as a professor, We're supposed to run the organization of a church with all the know how of a CEO, right? Be strategic and organized. We're supposed to have the gentleness and care of a counselor. And in the midst of all of that, to put our family first. There's an immense pressure that works to write a pastor's job description in different ways. But I know that Chuck's heart for you, and furthermore, the heart of your elders for you, is that they would live among you for your progress. And your joy in the faith. That whether uh, whatever it is, I mean, they, a pastor wears a lot of hats. Paul wore a lot of hats. Apostle, missionary, preacher, teacher, writer. But the, the central passion of his life with these people was their progress and joy in the faith. So our preaching is tailored towards that, towards your progress and joy in Jesus. our our efforts to do small groups and education and fellowship ministry, all of those things are for your journey and progress and joy in Jesus. That that is what a shepherd, a pastor, is there for. So create space for that in your life. I remember you met Mike Malone at Chuck's Ordination, many of you. Mike was a, a friend and mentor to many of us. I remember uh, I used to sit down with Mike Malone, usually, um, usually at a at an Irish pub. And the first question, Mike would always ask me, "Is brother, how is your soul?" And I remember thinking that is an awkward first question. That is, you know, normally when you get together with your friends, the first question is, you know, oh, can you believe what the Jaguars did? Can you? How about this weather we're having? But Mike intentionally pushed in. To find out the progress of what was going on in my soul. What was going on in my heart? Was I experiencing joy in Jesus? So let's make those kinds of conversations between pastors and people normal. Let's make it the expectation that as Paul with the Philippians, so your pastor with you, it might be normal, expected, and invited for him to have the space in your life to tend to your progress with Jesus. You know, one of the things that's really, really important to us at Christ Church is that we, we, we do want to have a high view of what a pastor does in the lives of a congregation. But it's not just the pastor who has a ministry here, right? Uh, ministry isn't something that one person does and the rest of us just show up and have done to us. It's something that we all engage with. We all find our our, our purpose and our meaning in the ministry of Jesus extending his love and his care and his grace and his truth into all of the places and all of the arenas where God's placed us. Perhaps in the church, right? For some of you, you have a ministry in the church of working with children or youth within the nursery, within the music ministry. So some of us, we should all seek to extend the ministry of Jesus within the body. But we all have others that God has given us in our lives with the intent that we pursue their progress and joy in Christ. Right, parents, do you pursue the progress and joy of your children in the faith? It is, that is a, that is a tall order, and it's a, it, it, it takes for me a repentance and a rewiring of the way that I live with my children. Usually, I want my children to go to bed on time I want them to eat their vegetables. I want them to get dressed and ready for school. I want them basically to do what I say when I say it uh, to make my life easier. It's hard to reorient your heart towards your children, to say I'm not not just after their external obedience. I'm not just after them showing up well-dressed to school and behaving and not getting a letter written home from the teacher. But I am actually pursuing their progress in Jesus so their growing understanding of their own sin, their own need of a Savior, the joy that's offered them in the gospel. I'm pursuing their hearts, not just their behavior. And I'm pursuing their joy in Jesus. I'm not trying to teach them to be good boys and girls so that God will love them and they'll be accepted and they'll be good people. I'm teaching them that they can't be good enough. But that Jesus came from heaven to earth to pursue their hearts, to die on the cross, that they could have life with Him and then find the freedom to be truly good. So, are you pursuing your children's progress and joy in Jesus? What about the the calling that we have in friendship, right? As friends, in a community? Are you pursuing the progress and joy in the faith of your friends? Or have you cultivated lots and lots of sports and weather friendships? Lots and lots of friendships where you're near one another, where you give one another some companionship, but you never step enough into one another's life to help in a meaningful way to engage the heart and help to point them towards Jesus, help them to take their next steps towards Jesus. Do you have a sense of your calling as a friend? is a ministry of Jesus? Spouses in your marriage, do you view your calling as a husband to be your wife's progress and joy in Jesus? Do you have a vision as, your, as a wife of your husband's journey to intimacy with Jesus, his joy in Christ? Right, we spend a lot of time trying to change our spouses, right? I mean, we, 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 we all try to kind of subtly or not so subtly either obviously or manipulatively, work to kind of remake our spouses in our image. How much time do we spend praying for our spouses, that they would be remade in the image of Jesus, they would be remade a sanctified and more holy version of who they are? I remember uh, reading something that Tim Keller wrote. He says, the whole world uh, believes when they realize, at some point in every marriage, you realize you married the wrong person. Right? It just it happens. Right? You realize that this person isn't uh, going to make your life as easy as you thought it would. They're not going to plus all of your minuses. They're not going to orient their entire life around your happiness. Right? You realize that at a point, some point in every marriage that you married the wrong person. You married a sinner. The whole rest of the world has no choice in that moment but to choose to either kind of suck it up and keep on going or to leave and try to find the right person. Only Christianity acknowledges that, yes, you married a sinner. Yes, you married the wrong person. But the marriage itself is built towards building a better version of that person. Right? Your marriage is about your sanctification, your growth in Jesus. It's about rubbing off our selfishness and our need for control, our need to dominate one another. That you pray more and more that as your spouse starts to look more and more like a, like a Christian, sanctified version of themselves. And as you start to, more and more, look and love like Jesus, that that's the magic of Christian marriage. So husbands and wives, do you move into each other's life for their, your progress and joy in Jesus? Because that's how Paul oriented his life, along that kind of love for these Christians. And he could only do that and we can only do that when we realize that that is how Jesus is loving us, right? That today in your life, Jesus, the one who laid aside his comfort and his happiness, willingly entering entering into suffering, even suffering on the cross, for your soul, for your life, for your progress and joy in the faith. That, friends, is how faith, seeing the living Jesus, orienting our lives around Him, gives us certainty, a certain hope in the face of death, and a radical, self-giving love in our community and in our world. Let's pray. Father, we do long, each of us, for progress and joy in Jesus. If we're honest, uh, far too often we, ve- uh, we measure our lives by other things. We seek progress in other areas. We find joy in lesser things. Jesus, we pray that increasingly you would be the one who satisfies our souls, the one who alone gives us comfort in life, gives us hope in death, and animates our love in our world. Lord, even now as we uh, begin to prepare our hearts for your table, we pray that there we would find uh, the satisfaction that our souls need, the grace that we crave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.